You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. When Jesus was asked the meaning of one of the commandments that teaches to love your neighbor as yourself, when he was asked to identify what it meant to be a neighbor, instead of giving a scholarly exposition or explanation, he told a story. And he told a story about a man who was traveling down the road who was assaulted and he was robbed and he was beaten within an inch of his life and left in the ditch to die. And in the middle of his difficult situation, here comes a priest. Thank God, right? A priest. This is clearly someone who is going to come and who's going to help him. But then the priest walks to the other side of the road and leaves him. Well, then comes a Levite. So of course, now, now he's going to have some provision and he's going to have some care. But yet again, the Levite walks to the other side of the road and continues on. Well, then comes a Samaritan. And not only does this Samaritan not have any reason to help the man in a ditch, but because of the, the history between their two people, he probably could have rejoiced in the current state of this man, beaten and bloody on the side of the road, but he didn't. In fact, what he did was he got down in the ditch and he picked the man up and he nursed his wounds and he brought him into the town and he paid his bills. And Jesus says that, that is what a neighbor looks like. And Jesus teaches the importance of a boundaryless neighbor, that a neighbor is not just the person who lives beside you, not just the people that run in your social circles, not just the people in your social media, not even just the people that you like, but a neighbor is anyone who finds their way into your path in any given time. But this isn't just a New Testament concept. In fact, it's something that we see all throughout the big narrative of scripture. This idea of caring for the other and treating them as neighbors. So many of the laws in the Old Testament deal with how you interact with strangers and how you welcome the foreigner and the refugee and how you love people in their time of need. And in the book of Jeremiah, as God's people are in exile in Babylon, we begin to see a transition even in how the people of God understand themselves because they go from a people who are based on place and ethnicity to a people being identified by their mission. And so wherever and whenever and however God's people find themselves, just like the people in Jeremiah's time, we have a calling to be good neighbors. And more importantly, we have to reflect the image of God anywhere and everywhere we go and in whatever circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. And we see that here in Jeremiah chapter 29 in one of its earliest incarnations. And so today we're going to pick up in this very short two-part study as it just feels very right and timely to look at how God's people have lived in exile and in times of difficulty before we're going to pick up with the latter half of Jeremiah chapter 29. And last week, we looked at the importance of recognizing circumstances and recognizing God's sovereignty in those times, but also to find these new rhythms and these new patterns of life that help us to live out the gospel in everything that we do. 
And today, as we look at the second half, we're going to recognize our responsibility in times like these. Because again, while our situation isn't a one-to-one exact match of the people in Babylon in the Old Testament, and as we're going to see, these promises aren't things that can just be randomly applied to any circumstance in any time, we can learn from how God's people interact in this city. We can learn from how God's people interact in these circumstances and in these situations. And as Tim Keller said, we can learn to seek the shalom or the welfare of the people, even in the midst of times of great need. And then at the end today, we're going to look at the importance of not only seeking the welfare of the community and the world around us in all times and all circumstances, not only being a good neighbor, but being a people of hope in all circumstances and what that looks like, not just for the people in exile, not just for the church in the New Testament, but for every generation of followers of God from this point until the day when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new. And so I'm going to go ahead and read all 14 verses, but we're going to focus today on verses 6 through 14 of Jeremiah's chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hands of Elasa, the son of Shephan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give them your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile." May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, it is so comforting to know that when we encounter trials and difficulties, these are not things that are unfamiliar to your people throughout history. And so, God, we thank you for this example. 
We thank you for the truth and the promise that we have, that you are with us, that you are working even in the midst of difficulty, and that you do have promises for your people, promises that inspire hope. But God, we also thank you that you give us work to do, that there are expectations for your people, even when they're hard to accomplish. And so God, I pray that you help us to learn from your people in exile. I pray that you help us to see the commandments and the counsel that you gave them to continue life and to continue your work and to seek the welfare of the community in which you place them. So God, we pray that you help us to be good neighbors, even in times when it seems hard or complicated. And God, I pray that you help us to cling to the hope that we have in Christ and to hold that hope deeply in our hearts and share it with those around us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I remember when I was growing up in sitcoms and cartoons, there was a trope that I feel like every show that I watched when I was a kid had at least one episode where there was conflict between the main characters. And so Cousin Larry and Balky get really angry with each other. And that's probably a reference for about seven of you watching, but it's fine. So they get upset with each other or any characters in any of the shows get upset with each other and they live together. And so they're in this complicated situation where they don't want to see each other. They don't want to be around each other, but they have to inhabit the same space. And so they come up with a solution. And whether it's a ribbon or tape or paint, they would do a line straight down the middle of their living area. And they would say, you know what? I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. And so you stay on your side and I'll stay on my side. And we don't have to spend any time together, even if we have to occupy the same space. And then, of course, they had come to realize that the door out of the house was on one person's side or the door to the bathroom was on one other person's side. And then general hilarity would ensue. But that really could have been the situation for the exiles in Babylon. They could have looked and said, you know what? You brought us here. That's fine. But we're not going to have anything to do with you. We're going to paint a line down the middle of our land. And we may be here, but we don't have to interact with you. We don't have to have anything to do with you. We'll do absolutely what we have to do. We'll pay our taxes. We'll participate in life a little bit. But here's the line. You don't cross this line. We won't cross this line. And there won't be any trouble anywhere in between. But then comes verse 7. After they get their orders to do life as normal, they could have said, okay, fine. We'll do life as normal as the people of Israel. And we'll just get in our own rhythms and we'll try to make this part of the city little Israel. And we'll just block it off as best we can. But then God says in verse seven, no, no, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says, you're not just here to be isolated. You're not just here to try to replicate what you had at home. Your life is different now. Your life is stranger than it ever has been. But while you live, you need to live for something beyond yourself. There's a purpose in your being in this city far beyond just discipline and punishment for your sins. While you're here, you're going to make the most of it, not just for yourself, but for the people outside as well. 
you're going to learn how to be a good neighbor. And in that passage of scripture, there are two very difficult reminders for the people of Israel. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And so they're reminded right there that both this is not their city, this is not their home, this is not the place where they want to be, but also that God is the one who sent them there. And so all while they're having to wrap their minds around these two life-shaking, earth-shattering things, God is also saying, you can't live with this mentality. You're not just going to sit here and mope because God has sent you into exile. You're not just going to sit here and be defiant because you're living in a city that's not your own. You are going to live for the welfare of the city. And I love that word there because this idea of welfare is very open-ended. He doesn't just say live for the health of the city. He doesn't just say live for the prosperity of the city. He doesn't even just say live for the good of the city, but to live for the welfare of the city, to live for the big picture prosperity and beauty of the place in which God has placed them. They were called to live for the good of Babylon on literally every front, the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the financial well-being of the city. But that's not where it stops, is it? He says, this place where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And this makes sense. Better your place, better your life, better the place where you find yourself, no matter what's going on. And you'll be able to improve your own welfare and your own quality of life as well. But there's something much more spiritually significant about this commandment that God gives because it's a reminder that yes, they're in exile. Yes, God has sent them there because of their sin, because of their idolatry, even though he gave them warning after warning after warning. But this is a reminder that he hasn't abandoned them and that he still does care for them and he still does care for their well-being. He says, I'm giving you these instructions, not just for the good of Babylon, but for your own good as well, because I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. I'm not over in Jerusalem while you're here in Babylon. I am here with you as your God. And there's a beautiful picture of God's relationship with the people of Israel here in the Old Testament. But now what about us? What do we learn from this? What does this passage teach us about not just our own circumstance and our own situation now, but any situation and circumstance in which we find ourselves as the people of God and followers of Christ? Well, the call to live for the larger welfare of the community around us is not over at Jeremiah 29. This is a commandment that is reiterated and affirmed time and time again throughout scripture. And maybe that looks different from generation to generation and an iteration to iteration, but it's still the same idea. Wherever you find yourself, whatever you're doing, you're not supposed to be myopic and inwardly focused, but you need to focus on the greater good of the community and the world around you. Think about Jesus and his encouragement to the disciples when he said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you came and cared for me. And the disciples said, what are you talking about? He says, well, don't you see whatever you do for the least of these you've done for me. 
Think about the church in Acts chapter two. There was selling their possessions and giving to those who were in need inside the community and inside the congregation, but also they were living for the welfare of the city and having an upright and good standing with the community around them. Think about Romans 12 where Paul tells us that the marks of a true Christian is that we're not simply focused on ourselves, but that we count others more significant than ourselves. That we honor the institutions and the government and the authorities around us. That we even love and care for and return in kindness the hatred of our enemies. All throughout scripture, the people of God are called to live for the welfare and the greater good of those around us. And our calling is the same no matter our situation. Our calling was the same a month ago as it is today. Our calling was the same when our rhythms and everything was normal and life felt like it always had. And our calling is the same now when everything seems to be shutting down and falling apart. The reality is the church is always in exile. We are never in a place where we should be completely and totally comfortable. The language the Bible uses about us when Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ, meaning that we're going out into the world from somewhere else. Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are marked as a kingdom and a people of God. And so there should always be a feeling of not belonging or not fitting in but a reminder that it's our calling to go and make disciples of all nations, to meet people where they are and to take the gospel with us and to live for their welfare, to do everything within our power, to care for people emotionally, to care for people mentally, to care for people physically, and if possible, even care for people financially, to seek the holistic good of the people in which God has placed in our lives, to be good neighbors. I think it's easy to say that now, maybe more than any point in the last 20 years, the world needs the church to seek its welfare. The world needs Christians to be good neighbors. And that's incredibly difficult in a world where we can't gather in numbers greater than 10. It's difficult to do that when even if you go into a store, there's markings on the floor keeping you six feet away from other people. And so it may be that we have to work a little harder, but we absolutely can still care for the needs of people physically. Whether that's through supporting our medical workers and our government officials and our first responders and the people who are doing the hands-on work of caring for those in need or checking on elderly neighbors who may be afraid to exit their homes or to even be in the proximity of someone else to go and do grocery runs, to go and just to make sure and check in and see if they're okay. For those that we know who deal difficultly with isolation, to make sure that we're reaching out and caring for them emotionally and caring for them mentally, reminding people that they're not alone. Even if it's just picking up the phone, calling someone on FaceTime, bringing someone in to to a Zoom discussion and making them feel like a part of a larger community. We can do those things and we've been given the technology to be able to participate in this right now and we shouldn't let it go to waste. We need to seek the welfare of our community and not let that rest just because our circumstances have changed. But there's more than just that. 
There's more to this than just the physical and emotional and mental well-being and welfare of the community. But we're also called to seek the spiritual welfare. Jeremiah had a rough ministry. We could say Jeremiah had a rough ministry. Pastors can tend to be a little whiny at times, and it can be a little annoying if we're being honest and open here. And sometimes the, the reaction just wants, I just want to say, suck it up and deal with it. It's not that bad. Jeremiah, he had it really bad. In fact, if you've been joining us for morning prayer every weekday morning at nine o'clock, we read a passage of scripture this week where Jeremiah was just saying what God told him to say, just doing his job as a prophet. And it wasn't particularly good news. And a significant group of people, religious officials, government officials, common people, all wanted to kill him. And not like the, oh, that Jeremiah, I could just kill that guy. But no, literally said, you know what we should do with this guy? We should actually kill him. And not only that, but he was constantly dealing with opposition, constant rejection of people not wanting to listen to his message because it was difficult and harsh. And in the middle of all of that, he was having to deal with false prophets all around him who were speaking the exact opposite of what he was trying to say, trying to lead people into a more comfortable existence with their sin and their idolatry and their situation, and was constantly having to undo all the things that were taking place in that as well. And so God has a message for that. In verse eight and nine, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Basically, God is saying, don't bring that false prophecy into this new city. Don't come in here making the same mistakes that you made, listening to all these false prophets and diviners and teachers who are clearly not coming from me. You need to use sound judgment. You need to be wise in your understanding of prophecy. And you need to listen to the words that come from me. You need to get that false doctrine and that false teaching out of this city. You see, in addition to living for the physical and the mental and emotional and financial welfare of this community, they were called to be a people on mission. And we see the impact that this makes if we jump to a different passage of scripture dealing with the people in exile. When we look at Shadrach, when we look at Meshach, when we look at Abednego, when we look at Daniel, we see what happens when the people of God find themselves in difficult circumstances and continue to live on mission anyway. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow their knee to a false idol, as they faced death head on, as Daniel continued to bow to his knees and worship God over and over and pray to God three times daily in his window when he knew that it could cost him his life and then continued to share the truth of who God is, we see that not only did God provide for them in their time of need, but we see kings of Babylon worshiping the God of Israel. They lived on mission and we see the power of a faithful witness even in the midst of unfaithful places. God's people have always been called to multiply and it was no different for the people in Babylon. 
And this is true for us as well. One of the difficult realities of our circumstances is that disaster and distress tend to pave the way for bad theology and false doctrine. And maybe you've seen this happen because when we think about all the, the media and the language that we're inundated with on a regular basis, whether it's through media or social media, we have an opening for a lot of bad theology and a lot of eschatology prophets trying to draw their charts on how coronavirus signals this and this and this and this, sometimes done out of a good place, but sometimes done out of much more nefarious intentions. People coming in and using fear, using anxiety, using worry to try to lead people astray into false teaching or to make the Bible speak something that is not clearly communicating. And so above all, when it comes to seeking the spiritual welfare of a community in crisis, it begins with a knowledge and a clear communication of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't start with trying to figure out how we interpret the gospel in a coronavirus world. It doesn't start with trying to figure out how we interpret the gospel in a time of isolation and fear and difficulty. It starts with an understanding of the gospel, that Christ died and rose from the grave and that anyone who puts their faith in him will be made new by grace and grace alone and will be sealed for an eternity with Christ. And we need to know the truth of the gospel and to recognize that no matter the circumstance, that never changes and cling to that truth and then decide how do we take the truth of the gospel and put it out into the world in a much different environment than we were used to a month and a half ago. But these situations also breed feelings of helplessness and at times of laziness where we say, you know what? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know how to share my faith in a time like this because all the programs and all the institutions and all the organizations and all the speeches that we had, they don't seem to work right now because the world is radically different than it was 40 days ago. Or we can come with a perspective of, you know what? I just don't want to do anything. I'm stuck in my house. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I'm a little bitter. I'm a little frustrated. And maybe I'm a lot afraid. And so I'm just going to sit here and I'm not going to do anything at all. But people still need the gospel. That doesn't change in any circumstance or in any situation. And another thing that's changed is God hasn't taken away our responsibility to do that. Paul, writing to a church in persecution, says, how are people going to know the truth of the gospel unless someone is preaching to them? He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so our calling is still the same as the people in Jeremiah's time, as the church in the midst of persecution in the first century, to go out and to be the vessel through which the gospel goes, not just to our community, but to the nations. And again, we are blessed to live in a time when we can do that with a more far-reaching impact than any single Christian has ever had the ability to do. Just normal, everyday folks like us have the ability to reach not just tens, but hundreds and possibly even thousands of people just through a device that lives in our pocket all day. We have the ability to connect with friends and family members who are far off and in distant places. We have no excuses for a lack of caring for the spiritual needs of our community. 
to care for people through the power and beauty of the gospel. But this passage doesn't stop there. Because not only are we supposed to seek the physical, emotional, mental, and even spiritual welfare of our community, but the people of God in the book of Jeremiah were called to cling to a future hope. And that's where our memory verse comes in, right? When we get to verses 10 through 14, he says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. We usually just take that verse and throw it away because it doesn't seem to apply to us. And then we jump into verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and place you where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. And when we get here, what normally happens is like we talked about last week. This seems like a good opportunity for prosperity preachers to say, you know what? Following God is about getting all you can, about being healthy and wealthy and wise. And see, it even says here that God has plans for us, plans to prosper us and give us a future and a hope. And if you just call on me, if you just call on my name, you will seek me and find me and I will restore your fortunes. See, God wants you to be rich and prosperous in all times. But then on the other side, in a less wicked sort of way, this passage finds itself coming to people who are sick, coming to people who are graduating, coming to people who are moving into new stages of life saying, listen, God knows the plans he has for you. And he has plans to prosper you and give you a future and a hope. If you just follow him, all these things are going to fall into place. But there is a danger for New Testament Christians when we approach prophecy and even narratives in the Old Testament to be promise stealers, where we go and we look at these things and we're like, well, we're part of the people of God now. Paul says that we've been grafted in. Jesus says that, that, it's, that those who are Israel are people of faith. And so I can just go back and look at all these passages of scripture because the Bible applies to me all the way across the board. And I can just say, all right, I like this promise. I like this promise. I like this promise. If you call to me, I will heal your land. We like that one too. God has plans for me, plans to prosper me. All these things apply to me. But here's the problem. Verse 10 says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And this is a promise that is actually literally fulfilled in time and space and history. As we see men like Ezra and Nehemiah lead some of the exiles home and they're able to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls and get back to life somewhat as normal as the people of God living in the promised land that he gave them. And so there is a direct fulfillment of this particular promise, and it's not our promise. And that's okay. Because that doesn't mean that there's not something to be taught to New Testament Christians when we look at this passage of Scripture. While this isn't a promise that if we just call upon the Lord and pray to Him, that He will give us fortunes, and that he'll take us out of this situation, or maybe we just need to wait 70 years and then we'll be able to be in groups of 10 or more. We can't just give this again one-to-one -one direct connection. But as we look at this promise, as we look at this passage of scripture, we see that just like all of the Old Testament promises, this promise points towards a better promise. Because while the people do get to come home, while the people do get to go back to their place, they're never fully back in the restoration period of David and Solomon. 
They live under the rule of Babylon. They live under the rule of Persia. They live under the rule of the Greek empire and then the Roman empire. It's a promise that's fulfilled, but it's not perfect. But it's meant to point us towards a better promise. It's meant to point us towards a better return from exile. This promise reminds us that one day God will bring his people home in their fullness. As we saw in the book of Revelation, that God will bring his city down and plant it in the middle of our world. And all those who have trusted in Christ, the gates will be open for us and we'll get to walk in and come home to Christ and be with Christ forever. And so just like the people of God were given this measure of hope, Jeremiah says, this is hard for now. This is difficult right now. This may even be hurtful right now, but in yet 70 years, God is going to honor this promise. In the same way, the New Testament proclaims the truth that life is difficult now for God's people, sometimes more so than others. But there's a promise and there's a hope of a return from exile. And so we can endure with hope in our hearts. We can be a people of peace that surpasses all understanding in times that don't feel very peaceful. We can be a people who rejoice in all circumstances and again rejoice knowing that God's goodness doesn't go away just because our life is interrupted and even hard. But we don't just cling on to that hope and keep it personally, but we share that hope. We live out that hope. And so I wonder, has your last week been a week of hope or defeat? Has your last week been a week of trust or despair? Are we living out a Christ-focused optimism, recognizing our situation, but more importantly, recognizing God's sovereignty in that and holding on to that hope and that peace that Christ has promised us? Are we living out a Christ-focused optimism or are we, like the world around us, just creating a black hole of negativity and hopelessness? You see, as the people of God, we are realistic about our circumstances. It is not ideal. It is not a good circumstance. And in a lot of ways, it's hard. And for some people, it's devastating. But we also know that even in the midst of our darkest times, that Christ walks with us and the spirit moves through us. And the church of God can stand as ambassadors of that hope, even in the midst of that, as we learn these new rhythms, as we build our life around this new normal, but shape it all around the gospel, we can still seek the welfare of our community and our world. We can still seek to proclaim the gospel with goodness because we know that we have a hope that goes beyond exile. We have a hope that goes beyond isolation. We have a hope that goes beyond sickness and a hope that goes beyond death. And we should be proclaiming Explaining that message everywhere that we go. And so no matter how this time may be affecting you or impacting you, the gospel is greater. And even if you're sad, you can have joy and sadness. Even if you're nervous and anxious, you can have peace in times of uncertainty. Even if you're sick and dying, you can have hope in the Christ who has promised us that our last breath is not our last. And so let's live like people in exile, but people on mission in exile, remembering that no matter where we go, 
that we are God's people. We are a kingdom of priests and we have responsibilities and a commandment to be good neighbors, no matter what those circumstances are, seeking the welfare of our world, proclaiming the gospel in all circumstances and holding on to the hope that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for that goodness and grace and those mercies that are sufficient for every morning. God, as we recognize the hardness of what we're going through, that for some is much more difficult than others, we pray that you give a hope that is unwavering, that you provide us with a peace beyond understanding, that you give us a joy that is unshakable, and that you give us a faith to endure. And as we realize the reality of our circumstances, God, we pray that you would give us a heart that not only seeks your glory, but seeks the good and the welfare of the community and the world around us. God, I thank you in times like this for the people who are putting hands to your work when others can't. Relief organizations, nonprofits, medical workers, first responders, retail workers, sanitation crews, God, we thank you for those gifts and those callings. God, help us to be good stewards and supporters of those things. God, help us to emotionally and mentally care for our neighbors, to use the resources you've given us to do that daily. And God, even more important than that, help us to seek the spiritual welfare of our community and our world. God, we ask that you open up doors to share the gospel, that we open up doors for salvation, for people putting their hope and their faith in you, that you would open up doors for us to care for people as they grow spiritually, that this would be a time when discipleship flourishes, not flounders. And that, God, you would keep us firmly fixed on the hope that we have in Jesus. And we ask all these things in his precious name. Amen.